Um, So the Bible reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter one. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ever ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Good morning. It is great to see you. God's been very kind to us with the weather. And we are thankful on behalf of the church leadership for your flexibility. I don't mean that in terms of Olympics or Paralympic strategy or strength, but it's quite a thing for us to uh, organize church outdoors. Uh, It's not just the weather. The AV team have been very accommodating. The school's been very kind to us. We're thankful to everyone that's taken part. Be with us still, please. Over the next month, we're going to be trying some different things as we seek to manage our way out of COVID very wisely and carefully. We're going to take the appropriate steps we're going to communicate the best we can, but there's going to be some change in the next month and following. Now, if you're sitting comfortably, then I shall begin. Those are the words that are said from Storytime with Mother in the 1950s and 60s on the radio waves. There's a few smiles from people above 30, shall I say, who can remember that. If you're a child of the 70s and 80s, perhaps Jack and Ori, that's your cup of tea. Do you remember that? 31 years, five days, five being 10 fingers up, five days a week for 15 minutes every day, children would uh, leg it home from school and they would enjoy a story. Jack and Ori, time with mother, listen with mother. Now, there is a load of stories that were told over decades. There are still lots of stories that are told, but they can be boiled down to about Seven, I wonder what your favorite is. Is your story an overcoming the monster story? Is that your favorite? What about rags to riches? What about the quest like Lord of the Rings? What about voyage and return? What about rebirth like a Batman story perhaps? What about comedy like a little bit of Shakespeare or something that Richard Curtis may have written? What about a tragedy? Basically Shakespeare wrote the lot, but Those are seven main storylines, and then they are expanded and reduced. They are repeated in every song, stage, screen, book, publication. There are basically seven key storylines in all of literature, and plots are recycled again and again. 
but it's not just on the printed page or it's not just on the stage or it's not just on the screen where we see and we are told to absorb the message of great stories. Every culture is excellent and skilled at communicating great stories and messages. They're woven through our culture a little bit like uh, seams are woven through a dress or a pair of trousers. We have values. We have uh, webs of meaning that are communicated to us in a whole host of communication ways and skills and strategies. It's very rare that God is in the picture of these messages, these, these grand stories, these meta narratives. Here are a few for you to try on to size to see if you can recognize them in our culture. Here's one. You can live your best life now without God in your life. You have a thirst for joy. Joy can be found only when you truly express who you really are. And if you don't express yourself fully, then you won't know lasting joy. Security, security, the key to security is found in the correct size pension pot. And it's always more than you have or planned for. You can... Uh, just work really hard for decades in a workplace of your making or choice. And if you work really hard, then you will find the approval that you long for. You want to find acceptance? Then all you need to do is to find the relationship with the love of your life. There are some big storylines that I've just listed off that you hear expounded in song and screen in workplace and at the school gate. There's a man called James K.A. Smith. He says this, it's not nagging questions about God or the afterlife that drive many people today. Rather, it's goals of significance that fill lives to such an extent that they seem to be content if they merely have the right relationships and the right experience, and they will confidently tell you so. In other words, God is not in the picture. We don't need God. God is responsible for a load of damage. He's done a lot of harm. Life is far easier when God is not in the picture, people say. But then as you get to know people who hold those beliefs with God uh, sidelined, there is a realization that there is something missing. There's a hole in one's heart that can only be filled by you, wrote the rock band Extreme in the 90s, showing my age. There is a dawning realization over time that something or someone is missing. It is dead easy to avoid the big questions of life. This is how you do it. You drink more, you eat more, you acquire more, you get the newest, the best and the last. But then even when you have the bigger house, the bigger car, the bigger TV screen, the bigger budget, there's still something that this world cannot quench, says the Bible. And that's why we're looking today at one of the most contemporary books in the whole Bible. The whole Bible is contemporary when it's read properly. But Ecclesiastes, man alive, it is so contemporary. There is a teacher. He's a bit more like a philosopher. And he says, Let, let's run a thought experiment. Let's do away with God. Let's push him to the side. And let's see how life goes with God taken out of the picture. Let's do an experiment and enjoy pleasure and wisdom. Let's see what the world has got to say. And let's see. And I'm going to push you, says the teacher, right to the logical conclusion. Verse one of chapter one, you can see the teacher identifying himself. He's going to throw at us lots of questions, but he will give you no answers. The rest of the Bible gives you the answers to the questions that he poses. And I want us to think about one question 
It's the search for meaning. The search for meaning. How? Where can we go to find the reason for our existence? Where can we go to find the reason for why we're here? This deep question that he raises for us. Two points this morning. We're going to be kind of short. The search for meaning is number one. The search for meaning. Where can we go to find the reason for why we're here? Chapter one, verse one, the teacher says, let's run with that. Let's explore what life is like with God taken out of the picture. It's a very secular way of exploration, which is why it's so helpful to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is what he says, chapter one, verse three. Chapter one, verse three is like a condensed, a fine condensed source that you have in a very high uh, expensive restaurant. It it just, uh, every phrase in verse three is critical as it distills the key message of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. This is what it says. What does it, what does man gain from all his labor Uh, which he toils under the sun. Let me read that to you again. What does man gain from all his labor, uh, which he toils under the sun? Now, under the sun is a, a shorthand way of saying, if this world is all there is, if all that you can see, taste, touch, feel, and hear, if that's all that there is, there's no spiritual world, God is not in the picture, it's a little bit like the Truman Show. If this world is all there is, let's just assume that for a minute. Let's just say life under the sun. That's a shorthand. That's in verse three. But that's not all. Look at verse three again. You see that word gain? What is a woman? What does a man gain? That word gain is used 10 times. It's a unique word found 10 times in the book of Ecclesiastes and nowhere else in the Bible. It's a qualitative word. It's a, it's a word of profit. It's a word of measure. It's a word to summarize what will last. If you're a businessman or a businesswoman, it, it's a word that says, well, after you've paid all the bills, what's left? What have I gained? What's it all worth? What have you got to show for it? It's that kind of word. And it's there in verse three. The teacher says, you're very, very busy in life under the sun with God taken out of the picture, out of the equation. You're working long, hard hours. I don't mean one week in a new post. I mean decades. And you get a clock at the end, like my father did, that sits on the mantelpiece for 40 years of service with the same employer. What's it all worth? That's the kind of question in verse three. And straight away, the Bible perks up our ears because the teacher's got a question that we all wrestle with. What's it all worth? Will people remember me? When I finish working here, when I finish serving here, when the kids have flown the nest, will I get a a blue plaque on the wall? (laughs) Will anyone remember me at all? Will my grandkids remember who I am? Will my great grandkids have a clue who I am if I have any great grandkids at all? What's your life worth? What are you accomplishing? What's the profit of life under the sun with God out of the equation? And in this chapter, The teacher says, well, I'm just going to give you three examples. What about uh, your purpose in life is to make the world a better place? Let's think about that. What about your purpose in life is to just enjoy life for all it has? It's about pleasure and hedonism. What about it's just living a respectable life? There's three. Let's run with those. And here we are. First one is found in uh, verse four and through to verse 11. What about the purpose of life, the meaning of your life with God out of the picture is to make the world a better place. Let's think about that. It's to leave your mark. It's to not leave, uh, leave any mark on uh, 
creation, of course, because Greta Thunberg and the Green Movement say it's about being responsible living. And there's a partial truth in what she says to be fair and charitable. But the teacher points out human history goes on. Look at verse four. Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. Look down to verse 11. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. You sound so glad I came to church this morning. You're really piquing my attention and giving me a great spirit. And look at verses 5 through 10. In verse 5 through 10, in, in the sandwich of these verses, verse 4 and 11, that are a summary of his argument, the writer goes to creation. And he says, notice the rhythm that God has put into creation. Seas rise and seas fall. The sun rises and sun sets. There is a rhythm to the seasons that God has put in place. There is a rhythm to the seas rising and falling, high and low tide. But here's the thing. You can observe that seasons come and go. There's a, there's a poem in York Cathedral that says, when I was a child, Time was so slow, but the older I got, time got quicker and quicker. And then as I got older, time just flies now. I mean, it was January just yesterday, wasn't it? Where's the summer gone? Where's my kid's childhood gone? Where's my figure gone? Where's my dark hair gone? And so on. If you live life under the sun and your purpose for living, your meaning for life is just to make the world a better place, will people remember you after you've lived your three score years and ten? To the best of my understanding, the only blue plaque in Epsom is Mrs. Beaton, famous cook. She worked hard for many years. She was a great chef, a great contributor to culinary expertise. But I think she's the only one. There might be one or two more. But will you remember her after she's gone? Will you get a blue plaque put up in your honor? You will soon be forgotten, says the writer. And all that will remain forever is the circle of life that God has put in place, the drumbeat of creation. If life under the sun is all there is, you'll soon be forgotten. If God is not in the picture, then everything you do means nothing because you will not be remembered. What about pleasure? If it's not about making the world a better place, if you can't really leave your mark, you might leave your mark for a decade, but then you'll be forgotten. You might get a blue plaque, but that will only be for a century. Then you'll be forgotten and people won't Google you anymore. But what about living for pleasure as a second way of living? Now, he's not necessarily talking here about a 60s understanding of excess and hedonism of sex, drugs and rock and roll. I don't think that's what he's talking about. But what about the writer is saying, if you live for the good things of this world, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? What about if you long to enjoy a good glass of wine like I do? That's a good thing, surely. But if you make that the end of your life, if that's all there is, then why don't you eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die, says the philosopher, the teacher. If you live for a fine meal, if you live only for your pension pot, if you live only for your family, and that's the center of your identity or a relationship, we have a high propensity to make a mess of life. It's another way of calling sin for what it is. There will come a point when the relationship you are enjoying stops bringing you so much pleasure and starts to bring you pain. There will come a point when fine food, the best restaurants no longer satisfy. There will come a point that drink will give you a headache rather than quenching your thirst. 
And the teacher says, when God is taken out of the picture and all there is is life under the sun, verse eight is a summary of what life is like. All things are wearisome. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the earth its fill of hearing. There comes a point when Netflix gets boring, when prime is uh, something to be deleted and so on. Look at verse 12 to 16. Does this man know what he's talking about? He says, I was king over Jerusalem. I devoted myself. I saw it all. I accomplished it all, to paraphrase. I had all the pleasure I wanted. Read the rest of the book. I had all the accomplishments I wanted, and it is a chasing after the wind. I still have not found what I'm looking for. Been kind of pop culture this morning, throwing in a few songs. I can't get no satisfaction, says another uh, music group that you know so well. That's uh, why do people sing like that? Why do people write this in poetry? Because it's true. There's a thirst in our hearts that alcohol cannot quench. There's a drumbeat in our life that pleasure will only partly satisfy. Food can be enjoyed, but it's not uh, an end in and of itself. So we're not here to make the world a better place. If you are, that's very short-lived. Pleasure, well, pleasure is something to be enjoyed, but it's not an end to itself. What about um, living an upright life? Thirdly, the third way of living. What about, what about just living with exploration of wisdom and understanding? Look at verse 17 with me. The wind noise, just to add to the atmosphere. Verse 17 says this, Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. I can't get hold of the satisfaction that I long for. I can't get hold of something solid to build my life upon. And I've been through many relationships. I'm still pursuing significance and safety and approval and comfort. And it's just a mist. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Do you know what he says? Look, I've tried wisdom. I've studied the books. If it's modern day translation, I've Googled wisdom. I've even read some Wikipedia. There's a tiny bit of wisdom to be found on Wikipedia as well. I've tried it all. I've even tried intentional rebellion. It's not just teenagers that have got this down to a T. I've uh, gone and been part of Extinction Rebellion. I've gone and worn black for a decade. I've gone and had been part of the punk network. Whatever generation, the mods and the rockers, I've tried conformity to the wisdom of the world and I've tried rebellion as well. Look at verse 17. I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also to madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. I've tried it all. I've tried having a huge intellect. I've tried emptying myself of all earthly wisdom. And I'm still not satisfied. That didn't find me satisfaction either. And the teacher is more like a philosopher is pushing you to say, if you live like that, Do you see where it gets you? And he doesn't let you off the hook. He's saying, be consistent. If you live for your best life now, try it. I've tried it, he says, and it doesn't satisfy. Go for education. Go for do a master's. And uh, you can do it to honor God or you can do it to honor yourself. Go and get a PhD and you've got to start critiquing the learning of other people and making a name for yourself at someone else's expense. And the danger is that you can just live for education. He says something about that at the end of Ecclesiastes. But he's pushing us further and further to say, do you see with intellectual integrity, if you follow that way of life with God out of the picture, where you end up? Either you live life with God out of the picture that this is all there is, 
and see where it gets you or have the intellectual credibility to look for a desire that's pushing you beyond all that you can see, taste, touch, and smell. The Bible says everyone has a purpose because you've been created in the image of God. Why do you want to be part of something bigger than yourself? Where does the desire to be part of something that gives you joy come from? Where does the, uh, the longing to gaze on something beautiful, whether it's a work of art or a sunset or a newborn child or someone you love, where does that come from? Where does that desire come from? The more we try to look for meaning outside of a context of Jesus Christ, the more true meaning just slips through our fingers. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Every natural desire you have has an object in this world. You're hungry, so you want food. You're thirsty, so you want drink. Um, you long for intimacy, and so this sexual desire is part of that. But then he asks this great question. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Or in the language of Ecclesiastes, maybe there is life beyond the sun. Maybe this is not all there is, says C.S. Lewis and the writer. For all the messages that our culture throws at us, there is a better story a true story that's found in the Bible. That's what I want us to think about now. A better story, a better story. Having quoted C.S. Lewis, I'll quote his good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. He wrote a load of other stuff as well. And there's a great essay called On Fairy Stories. On Fairy Stories. It's a riveting read, I assure you. He says, there's a kind of story that really moves us. There's a kind of story that has in common a kernel of truth that we can see and enjoy. He says it has this in common. There is a hopeless situation. And then victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat, not an animal in the ocean. But how does that happen? How is victory snatched from the jaws of defeat? Often it's like this. Someone, a heroic person, a heroine comes in, a victorious king comes in, and their weakness is turned into strength. Their tragedy turns into triumph, and there's a great sense of joy at the end of the story. There's a kernel of truth that is common in all those stories, and, and it's a bit like it reverberates a bass string that Nick might play at the front here. When you see a film or you go to the opera, if you're a little bit more highbrow than I, if you go and hear a great piece of music, that there's a, a reverberation of the bass string in these, uh, this story that you're seeing. It reverberates, but only the gospel can pluck the string truly and make it ring truly. There's a reason that we get joy from beauty and the beast. There's a reason that we get joy from Hercules as he reveals his mighty strength and destroys the villain. Because there's a kernel of truth that echoes the true story of the gospel. The questions that's raised by Ecclesiastes is answered by the truth that's found only in Jesus. The gospel is joy. The joy is not found in an earthly relationship. True joy can only be found in the spiritual relationship that Jesus Christ offers. He really is the hero that every story points to. And so in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. That's how John begins his gospel. John chapter one, 
verse one. In the beginning was the word. Now, the word there is logos. It's a, it's a word, another way for saying meaning that philosophers have uh, grappled with, whether it be in Rome or Greece, centuries ago or to the modern day. What is the meaning to life if you ignore the answer from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? The Bible says this is the meaning to life. It's not a philosophy, it's a person, and his name is Jesus. Verse 14 of John chapter 1, the word, the logos, became flesh, and he lived, he tabernacled amongst us, and we beheld his glory. The glory, the weightiness that Ecclesiastes points us to that we can't grasp, it's like mist and vapor that slips through our fingers. Jesus comes, and Jesus alone lives a satisfactory life on our behalf and dies a substitutionary death in our place. And in him alone can we find true meaning. One of the ways uh, you can understand what it means to be a Christian is this. It means to know that everything in this life is just a reflection of the truth that's found only in God's nature. Why is there spring after winter? Why? When a seed falls into the ground and dies, does it rise up and bear much fruit? Because in nature, there is the fingerprints of the creator right throughout its uh, order. And so a flower dies and brings fruit and one season follows another because we see in it the order that God brings of life out of death which means even in the created order, we can see testimony to his goodness and his power and his nature and his order, which means right now counts forever. If you don't know if you believe in God or not, basically you're living off uh, his credentials and his kindness and his goodness. This book, the book of Ecclesiastes, says that God has placed eternity into the heart of every man, woman, boy and girl. And so if you say, no, there is right and there is wrong, but uh, I live in a secular understanding and I'm an atheist, where do those categories come from, says the writer? If you're living uh, longing for hope and you still haven't found it, where does that desire come from? Where does your appreciation of beauty come from? Where does your longing for acceptance come from? Where does your longing for control come from? What does it shout a need for? Romans 1 says, all of us know that God exists. But because we want to be in control and we think we can do a better job than him in our pride and sin and fallenness, we are living on God's coattails and we're living as if he doesn't exist and if we can do a better job without him. We're living off his kindness without acknowledging his lordship. Can I encourage you, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking through these things, to look at the Gospels. Look at Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and see and hear and understand with all your questions who God on the pages of the Bible claims to be. He's revealed himself fully so that we can be without doubt and without longing for meaning. We can find it in him. Christian friends, if you're here this morning, and it's the start of a new term and you say, well, I believe in God. Let me ask you, are you believing in him so that he is the center of your life? Is he a slip to the periphery during the summer months? Are you centering your life upon him as we journey all too quickly towards Christmas? With all our concerns about the past, present and future, are you trusting him? Are you communicating with him? Is he a distant concept to you? Have you forgotten him over the summer? 
or is he the drumbeat of your heart? It's not enough just to believe in Jesus intellectually. You've got to know him as a person. Do you enjoy him? Do you talk to him? Do you commune with him? If you're a Christian and you're building your life on your career or your family or your status or your postcode, they will let you down. But Jesus won't. He will never let you down. You were created for him. You were made for him. You will find true to satisfaction only in him. You can't believe in him just in a general sense. You've got to commit yourself to him totally. You've got to live a sold out life for him. This life has meaning only because God sent his son from outside beyond the sun. The sun came, S-O-N. And because he entered into our world and redeemed our creation in part, and in the future, he will redeem it in full. That means that what we do in this life really matters. If you live under the sun, that's all there is. You will lose life. If you live as life under the sun is just a part of the universe that shot through with the glory of God, you will find your meaning. You will find your father. You will find your true brother, whose name is Jesus. You will find satisfaction only in him. That's why the story in this book is the greatest story ever told. Because it satisfies the longing of our hearts. But more than that, it's the greatest story ever told because it's true. Let's pray together.